You're listening to the Sojourn Church New Albany sermon series, This Beautiful Church, Seeing and Being the People of God. In this series, we see the beauty of who we can be because of Christ. We'll learn God's plan for making us mature in Christ so that we become a beautiful church. Now hear the word of the Lord from Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Remind the believers to submit to the government and its officers. They should be obedient, always ready to do what is good. They must not slander anyone and must avoid quarreling. Instead, they should be gentle and show true humility to everyone. Once we, too, were foolish and disobedient, we were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of evil and envy, and we hated each other. But when God, our Savior, revealed his kindness and love, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Because of his grace, he made us right in his sight and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to insist on these teachings so that all who trust in God will devote themselves to doing good. These teachings are good and beneficial for everyone. Do not get involved in foolish discussions about spiritual pedigrees or in quarrels and fights about obedience to Jewish laws. These things are useless and a waste of time. If people are causing divisions among you, give a first and second warning. After that, we have nothing more to do with them. For people like that have turned away from the truth, and their own sins condemn them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. It's good to see everybody. Uh, My name is Jonah. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome. Happy Mother's Day. And I just, can we give one more round of applause for all the babies and kids? Woo! Man, after, after all these months to see such life in front of us, what a, what a, what a gift it is. Um, and what a privilege for all you families, grandparents, aunts, uncles, brothers, sisters to be here. So thanks very much for being with us. I'm real quick. I let the coffee drinker say amen. Anybody drinking coffee this morning? Amen. amen. Okay, amen. Thanks be to God. Drinking it the way the Lord created it, which means black, but if some of y'all putting stuff in it, we won't pray for you. There'll be a prayer service for the creamers afterwards. Um, if you look at the coffee sleeves, we have some information. This is Orphan Care Awareness Month. There's some information about a local organization that we partner with, some things to think about on your coffee sleeves. Um, and, and so there's a, there's a huge opportunity for the church uh, to take care of the most vulnerable people in our society and in our state, and that is orphans. And so uh, in a couple of weeks, we're, I think it's, um, when is it? Next week, sorry, next week, we have a foster care meeting. Um, we have a, a pretty active foster care community in New Albany and here in our church. And if you're the least bit interested in trying to care for some of these children uh, in, in, our, in our community, or you get on this website that's listed here, or even just read this, 10,000 Indiana children enter the foster care system each year. Um, what would happen if all 10,000 of those kids were going into healthy, strong Christian homes? Uh, what kind of impact could that have 10, 15, 20 years down the road? If you're the least bit interested in getting involved in that, well, that's the Lord telling you, somebody said. 
Somebody was like, I don't know if I should or not. And the Lord just gave you thunder. That means yes. Know the times. Uh, then next Sunday, uh, we're having um, just an informational meeting at 9 a.m. in the adult classroom. So that's the room right across the hallway that says classroom across the top. You can show up. There's details about that in the events tab of your Sunday bulletin, which is on the Sojourn Collective app. So I invite you to check that out, and I really hope some of y'all can make it next week. Uh, it's ironic that we just had lightning and thunder. Um, every winter I forget that lightning exists, and then it always scares me in the spring when it happens again. Uh, for me, here's why it's ironic. This was written a couple of weeks ago in my sermon. Uh, becoming a Christian for me felt like getting struck by lightning. Um, and you can't push that analogy too far for me. Imagine what you would do if you got struck by lightning and survived. And that's basically what I did after I became a Christian. Um, I became a Christian at summer camp. Anybody else have that experience? One other person? Okay, me and Tim, we'll talk, <laughs> we'll talk about it afterwards. I became a Christian at a summer camp, and I came home and began telling everybody about Jesus. Uh, a week after I came home from summer camp, my mom pulled me aside, and she was like, what happened to you? And that's, that's what happened to me. Jesus happened, mom. And I told all of my friends, I shared the gospel, anyone that would listen. And shortly after that, so I was turning 16 when this happened. Shortly after that, I lost all of my friends. Uh, nobody, hardly anybody that I was friends with talked to me at all for six months. And I remember thinking things like the words of Jesus, blessed are you when they hate you for my sake. Um, I was experiencing my first taste of persecution I was being rejected for my faith, and I felt solidarity with Christ. As high school went on, uh, I went to a really small high school. There's like 80 kids in my graduating class, so it was hard to avoid somebody very long. Uh, we, I started talking with all these people that had stopped talking to me that first summer after I got home from camp. Um, so in, in my mind, again, just to be clear, I came home from summer camp with the message of hope and life and told everyone that I knew. After listening to my friends about what I actually said to them, what I learned is that I came home from summer camp and I yelled at everyone. I called them all sinners. I told them how awful they were over and over and over again. I yelled at them. They turned away from me and I called it persecution. They were turning away, just to be real clear, they were turning away from an angry, mean person. They weren't turning away from Jesus. They were turning away from a jerk, not the gospel. Do you know the difference? Uh, later, I became involved in a ministry to high school students called Young Life. Anybody? Young Life? Anybody? Anybody here? Anybody? Couple? Got a couple Young Life people. That's where I became a Christian, was in Young Life. Uh, and then I went on to serve in Young Life. And when I was going through training as a new leader, they had this phrase that's always bothered me and yet stuck with me. This is one of the key phrases that they taught us when we were training to be leaders. They said, earn the right to be heard. Earn the right to be heard. I didn't like it at first. Why? Because I'm a child of the Most High God. I don't need to be given a right to share the gospel. I'm a son of the King. I wasn't angry with my friends in my mind. I was right. You ever found yourself saying something? Don't raise your hand now because someone's going to be mad at you for it. You ever found yourself saying that in your head? I'm not mean or angry. I'm right. I was right and I was wrong, okay? Yes, I was a child of God in a technical sense. Does anyone need to bequeath to you the right to talk about Jesus? No, of course not. You're a son of the living God. Was I right 
in my assessment that those people were sinners. Yes, they were sinners. But that did not give me the right to be angry, cruel, or condemning. Let me put it to you a simple way. The truth never gives you the right to abandon the fruit of the Spirit. Your personal rights never supersede the Christian command to love. What I learned through high school and into college was that my life was betraying my witness. Earning the right to be heard, I learned, was about building relationships through love and sacrifice that would make my witness beautiful. This was one of the big lessons we've learned in our journey through Titus. We saw this last week in Titus chapter 2. Paul taught us to work hard, to show others the goodness of God. And then in 2.10, he says, so that we will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive in every way. The life of a Christian, the way we love, talk, serve, ought to make the gospel compelling, the truth of it. Our lives ought to show the beauty of Christ and what he can do to somebody. The the commands of Titus 2 that we looked at last week were about Christians relating to one another, but the impact would be felt by those outside of the faith. We saw this in every instance of Paul's commands in chapter 2. The secret to a powerful witness is not winsome words or compelling arguments. The secret to a powerful Christian witness is a beautiful life of love of service, and of sacrifice. Not only to our fellow Christians, which we looked at in chapter 2, but now in chapter 3, we see that's the posture to those outside of the church too. Paul shows us what it means to earn the right to be heard, and he starts with how we relate to the government. And now listen, on the front end, I just want to say personally, I'm not particularly excited about talking about the government right now, And I don't want to do it on Mother's Day. I don't want to do it after all the things of the last year and a half. But fundamentally, if you're like, what is Sojourn about? Or you're visiting, we're basically a Bible church. We take books of the Bible and we go through them. And it just so happens that here we are about to talk about the government on Mother's Day. So y'all ready? Amen. Someone? So we'll just listen to see what God has to say and I'll do my best to get out of the way. Um, Okay. Chapter 3, verse 1. Remind the believers to submit to the government and its officers. They should be obedient, always ready to do what is good. We talked about this word submit last week as it's kind of a a regular, it's a normal command for every Christian in every sphere of life in one way or another, and here it's related to government. We talked about submission being a posture of service, a choice, a voluntary willingness to serve, to commit ourselves to the good of another. A simple way to to sum up the scriptures, particularly the New Testament's commands about how we relate to the government. We strive to be an obedient blessing. When you think about how should a Christian relate to our local government, wherever you are, we strive to be an obedient blessing. We obey the government and we strive to bless our communities through acts of service. And that's obedience and service for the sake of our witness, not for influence, not for power. When, this is just a little side note here. When Christians strive for influence or power, if you're 50 up, I know you've seen this. If you're, if you're a Christian or watched Christians strive for influence or power, it's often influence and power that shape them, not the other way around. Do you know what I mean? When, when Christians have a strategy of if we could get to the government, if we could get into the government, then we would be able to have such an amazing Christian influence. Who's usually influenced there? Is it the Christian politician or is it the government? Nine times out of ten, it's, it's, 
it's the Christian politician. The only exception I can really think of is Jimmy Carter. How was he as a president? Oh, it's awkward and <laughs> silent. <laughs> By my reading of history, not the greatest of presidents. What did Jimmy Carter do after he left the, the presidency? He's basically built houses and cared for orphans for the last 50 or 60 years. He's a far better Christian than he was a politician. We have to not make the mistake of thinking that our Christian witness will be driven or strengthened or the, the answer is through influence or power. Um, two decades ago, Tim Keller said this in a sermon. He said, the closer a church gets to the people with power, the more there will be pressure on that church to mute discussion of the gospel. I'm just going to talk about this for another couple of minutes. Have you noticed how rarely a politician will say the name? Do you know whose name, whose name am I talking about? Jesus. They might say the G word. You might hear him talk about God every so often. When was the last time you heard a politician talk about Jesus? And not in like, as Christians celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, or some like generic announcement about Easter or something. Uh, our previous president refused to quote scripture. Remember he said it was just a very personal thing and he didn't want to, he didn't want to, you know, try to quote the scripture. Couldn't quote scripture. Our current president, have you heard him try to quote the scripture? When he's like, when the eagles raise on the wings of doves and when you, for the blessed are those, and he, why? Because they don't know the book. I don't, if, you're on, if your guy was on the right, he didn't know a verse. And if your guy is on the left, he didn't know the verses either. Why will they not talk about Jesus? I'm going to tell you the secret of American politics. U.S. politicians are most interested in being elected again. Is, is that a mystery? We've got hundreds of years that confirm this on both parties, both sides. They're fundamentally most interested in getting elected again. So why do they not say things like Jesus? Because some people don't want to hear about Jesus and they won't vote for that guy. They're most interested in not losing votes. The closer that we get there to that place of power or weasel our way thinking that we will have Christian influence there, I mean, nearly every time, the more pressure we will feel to compromise the gospel like all of our politicians do. Running towards power and influence will compromise our proclamation of the gospel, and we must not make the mistake of thinking that God needs big, impressive, flashy acts to build his church. Instead, the Christian strives to be an obedient blessing. If you want impact or influence, strive to be an obedient blessing. And then, as, uh, this almost feels like a warning against our grandiosity of thinking we have to do this huge, wonderful thing. Paul gets incredibly practical about what this actually means. The practicalities of, if you want to be an obedient blessing towards government officials, what does that mean? Verse 2, they must not slander anyone and must avoid quarreling. Instead, they should be gentle and show true humility to everyone. What does it mean Fundamentally, the baseline expectation for how Christians should interact with the government. Don't slander. Don't fight about it. Instead, be humble and gentle. What is slander? I'm just, just going to give you straight Webster's right now. This isn't Webster's, actually. Sorry. This is a Greek word. This is a translation of the Greek word. Sorry. I'm just not trying to be dishonest here. Uh, this word slander, it means... <laughs> I feel like we could just stop the sermon here after this. It means to speak in a dis disrespectful way that demeans, denigrates, or maligns. 
It means to speak disrespectfully of someone. Do I need to say more, Christians? How have we done with this in the last year? Christians do not call our politicians' names or assess their hearts. I think we can speak out against policies and behaviors. We can name inconsistencies. We can discuss things that we disagree with. That's a true gift of living in a democracy, one that none of us should take lightly. We have a voice and we can speak up, but we do not slander the people. Do you know the difference? Disagreeing with someone's policy versus attacking their character or their health? Do you know the difference? What happens if we reject this teaching? To not slander? What happens? Well, I call your guy a name, but he's my guy. I'm going to call your guy a name if you call my guy a name. Well, you've called my guy a name, and that's my guy. And what happens when Christians do that to one another? Well, now we're fighting. And now this side of the church believes this thing, and that side of the church believes this thing, and that side of the church back there goes to the other church because that church only likes one guy, and they don't disagree with anybody at all. When we reject this teaching, down the road, eventually we'll start going to different churches. That's not a beautiful church. That's not a beautiful witness. I don't want you to answer this out loud right now, but what is your sense of what, what the stereotypical evangelical Christian is these days? If we just walked down and found someone that hasn't been to church in a decade and said, what do you think an evangelical Christian is? How would you know that it's an evangelical Christian? Do you think it would be there? They, they serve our community so much. They do so much, the way they take care of us, the way they've just swarmed in taking care of the, the foster care system in Indiana. Do you think that's what we're known for right now after the last year and a half? A beautiful church is gentle and shows true humility to everyone. You don't earn the right to be heard through swords or shouts. And some of us, myself included, we want to jump right to the exceptions here. We hear this teaching, obey the government, be kind, be gentle, don't slander. And we immediately think of situations where we shouldn't obey or where we should slander. Or when can we say something that is mean or that is harsh? Yes, there is evil in the world. No, we're not to obey everything all the time. But if you're, if you're focusing on the exceptions before you've mastered the rule, you will miss both of them. If, if you are not faithful with what is clear in this text, you will not be faithful with what's a bit ambiguous. If you are not faithful with the clear teaching of this text, you will not be faithful with some of the exceptions that come up down the road. All of us, left or right, have to do better. Have your opinion, Christian. Yes, absolutely. Do not throw away your opinion. Do not go into this ambiguous apathy where you don't care about anything. Have your preferences, yes. But until we're called to deny Jesus in the name of the government, obey. Speak with respect and generosity. Anger is not a fruit of the Spirit. Anger is not a fruit of the Spirit, but gentleness is. So just... 
real, real simple. If you're, before you speak, tweet, post, text, before you communicate about politics, ask yourself, is this gentle and humble? Am I slandering or fighting? Again, I'm not telling us to not talk about politics. In some ways, I wish we were able to talk about politics better and healthier. I'm not saying good Christians don't talk about politics. I'm saying let's learn to talk about politics like Christians because our witness to the gospel is at stake. Here comes the real lesson in this passage. Verse three, he says, once we too were foolish and disobedient, we were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of envy and we hated each other. When we are slandering and fighting, don't you know that's, the, that's our old way of life? That makes us look like people who don't believe in Jesus. That's how the world handles things, not the church. We used to be foolish and disobedient, fighting and fussing. And then what happened? Lightning struck. Jesus came, verses four through five. This is something, this is the original church catechism. That, that This was the first church creed, the way it's written and structured, and it shows up all of these other places. This is a good bet that this was the core of Christianity for the first hundred years or so. When God, our Savior, revealed his kindness and love, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. He saved us. We were foolish and disobedient. We used to live like the world lives, but then he saved us because he's merciful. And what does that salvation mean? Can we leave, leave the verse up there for a second, please, Carter? It says new birth there. Go snoop around other translations. It's translated a bunch of different ways. This word is only used twice in the New Testament. Here in one other place. It's a very strange word. It's an unusual word. But if you go over into Stoic philosophy, this word shows up all the time. Stoic philosophy would have been real popular here in the island of Crete. There was a group known as the Stoics. They were very influential. And in essence, they believed life was pointless. They believed life was one big circle that everything just kind of happens again and it's meaningless. And so you just got to kind of deal with it. But they believed that every so often life would get so bad that everything would just burn down whether through war or cataclysm, and the earth would just start over and then it would all happen again. History was one big circle, and then there would be a cleansing through fire. This is the word that they would use there, that we have for rebirth. It, it literally means regenesis. The only other place it shows up is in the ministry of Jesus. In Matthew 19, Jesus says, I assure you that when the world is made new, there's that word rebirth, new birth, regenesis, and the Son of Man sits upon his glorious throne. You who have been my followers will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Paul is saying, look at Jesus. The Stoics have it wrong. There is a climax to history. There is a point to it all. There is a true regenesis. There is a true new birth, new beginning. We have it in part now, a regenesis of the soul it will come in full when the Christ returns and he sits on his throne. This changes everything. If these verses in Titus truly are the heart of Christianity, it means you and me and everyone who calls on Christ have been given a regenesis, a new birth, a new life, born again, we're something new. Why can, how does that help us obey a government that we don't always agree with, especially in a democracy? Because the Christian can say they're not in charge anyway. 
Christ is king, and we know that when he comes, regenesis, lightning will strike, and he will make all things new again. Why can we speak gently and humbly? Because we know that we once were foolish and disobedient too, but Christ came, and he gave us regenesis. We can face this. Verse 7, because of his grace, he made us right in his sight and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. If we keep the center of our faith, this regenesis, it's so clarifying. Why would we fight over politics when Christ is king? Why would we divide over it when Christ is king? Talk about it, certainly. Consider ideas, certainly. Work together to find the best way forward, certainly. But fight and divide? No. It betrays our witness and it damages the church. In verse 9, Paul says, don't get involved in foolish discussions about spiritual pedigrees or in quarrels and fights about obedience to Jewish laws. These things are useless and a waste of time. In essence, the context is a little bit different for us here, but he's saying, don't fight about things that cannot save you. Do not fight about things. Divide, quarrel about things that cannot give you regenesis. Learn to talk about issues without putting the weight of salvation on them. Do you know what I mean by that? I just wonder what could have happened if our mass conversations weren't on the one hand, you're either giving in to the totalitarian government wants that to destroy the church. Like that's the one side. And then the other side says, well, if you don't wear a mask, you want grandma to die. And then it's like, well, am I for totalitarian government or the death of grandma? You know, like and we, we, can't, we can't talk when everything, have you noticed if you pay attention to the church right now, how everything is a gospel issue. How suddenly everything puts the whole church at stake. So if everything is a gospel issue, what, well, then we fight about everything. And what is the result? This large-scale shifting of church membership where we're all just kind of homogenizing into the people that think like us and act like us and look like us. The world is watching us fight and divide, and they're confused. We're hurting one another. And these are all issues that are they important? yes. Are they worthy of being discussed and talked about? Yes, absolutely. Can they carry the weight of regenesis? No. Are any of them the heartbeat of Christianity? No. We remain gentle and humble even when it's a big deal. So whatever the thing is that you find yourself disagreeing with a Christian about, is this offering to rebirth you? Whatever the, tif- the, the topic is, does this thing have the power of regenesis? And if the answer is no, I'm begging you to stop fighting about it. Stop fighting about it. Listen to how serious this thread of division is. If people are causing divisions among you, give a first and a second warning, and after that, have nothing more to do with them. People like that have turned away from the truth and their own sins condemn them. Why is this such a big deal? Why is this an accelerated church discipline process? You get two shots and then we're just going to throw you out for good. Why? Because our witnesses are at stake. The way the world will understand who Jesus is and what the church is, is at stake. When we fight and divide over politics, please listen to me now. When we fight and divide over politics, the world does not believe us when we say Jesus is king. That's the deal. 
When our words are filled with slander and fighting, no one will believe us when we invite them into the body of Christ. When we argue endlessly over secondary issues that don't offer power of regenesis, no one will see the way we love one another. If you care at all about those who are far from Christ, if you're interested at all in joining Christ's work of making all things new, if you have any love for your brother and sister, put away, please, put away your harsh, divisive, quarrelsome, slanderous words and put on the power of regenesis, of new life, of new birth, new allegiance, new love. When Christ comes and strikes you with his lightning, it changes everything. It is truly a new beginning. When he comes again, do you know what's going to happen? He's going to make new oceans. He's going to make new mountains. He's going to make new plains and and cities. He's going to have a city come down from heaven, and he will make you new again. That same power that hovered over the waters of creation, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the same power that will make all things new again will come, and he will make you new again. So now let's live like the new person we already are in Christ as we wait for the day when we will experience it in full. So earn the right to be heard, Christian. Earn the right to be heard by taking up service, humility, and gentleness. This is the power of Christ in you, and it's the power that will make all things new again. And so we, we call our minds to the source of this power and the pattern that Christ set for us by remembering the night when Jesus was betrayed. He took a loaf of bread. He thanked God for it, blessed it broke it and gave it to his disciples. said, this is my body given for you. Eat this and remember what I've done for you. In the same way, when the meal was over, he took a cup of wine. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant sealed with the shedding of my blood. Drink this as often as you gather in remembrance of me. Thank you for listening. Keep in touch with Sojourn New Albany on Facebook or download the free Sojourn Collective app for iPhone or Android, where you can see our full library of sermon series audio and video, discussion questions, event calendar, ministries, and much more.